Good afternoon and welcome to Conversations with the Candidate on Oklahoman.com. I'm Chris Castile and we are live here in the Oklahoman studio in downtown Oklahoma City and we have today Congresswoman Kendra Horn of Oklahoma City, a Democrat who's running for re-election in the 5th District. On Tuesday, October 13th at 2 o'clock, we will have Republican State Senator Stephanie Bice, who is Congresswoman Horn's opponent in the race. And also next week, we will have U.S. Senator Jim Inhofe and his Democratic opponent, Abby Broyles. Hope you will join us for all those, either um, when they're streaming live or you can find them later on our website, oklahoman.com, or on our YouTube channel. And I should, I should announce before, um, before we get started talking, um, the longtime video uh, uh, director for the Oklahoma, a great journalist, great guy, Dave Morris, um, took another job within Gannett and oh, wow. is now in Chicago. Um, so no Dave, you knew Dave yeah. well. Um, but he left the um, department in the able hands of Paige Dillard, who uh, got us set up today. Yeah. So. Um, well, glad to, I'm glad to be here. It's nice to be able to sit down and actually uh, actually talk face to face. Yeah, it's been a while. So last night, first debate. How do you think it went? Yeah. It was pretty pretty civil affair. No interruptions. Yeah, I think it went pretty well. I mean, I think we discussed a lot of issues that are important to Oklahomans, and I appreciate the opportunity to have a conversation that isn't just about talking over each other. Right. To me, that's that doesn't help us. Uh, I don't know, have more clarity around what issues are out there. It's mm. just a contest. So I appreciated the ability to have a good conversation about a lot of issues that are important to Oklahomans. And just yeah. the first of three. Um, yeah. you, got, you guys are doing two more. I think the second one's on October 13th. So. Yes. Yeah. Next week, uh, News 9, uh, Channel 9. And then I think uh, the week after is Fox 25. Right. So we'll have three. Um, so I wanted to just start off by, by letting you talk a little bit about your background. Um, I, I, I know just a couple things. Chickasha, I do know. Yep. Um, you were uh, born and raised, I guess, in yep. Chickasha, home of the fighting chicks. Home of the fighting chicks. And um, born in 1976 in Nation That's Centennial. Right. Exactly. Um, so just tell me a little, Chickasha is just down the turnpike about yep. 45, 50 miles. Yep. Uh, about um, tell me a little bit about growing up in Chickasha. Well, you know, my my parents still live in the same house that I was I, I grew up in. You know, I've lived in the same place all growing up, and I think, you know, being from Chickasha, I had the for good fortune to have grandparents and great grandparents around, and I'm a fifth generation Oklahoman on both sides of my family. Mm -hmm. Not everybody from Chickasha, but quite a few, uh, and and I think it it provided me just this great foundation. I I had you know my great grandmother, uh, my mom's on my mom's side was really close to her as well as my wow. other grandparents, mm -hmm. and you know that it's a it's a good. Big foundation, yeah, big. Oh, yeah, big, <laughs> big Thanksgivings. Because my grandma uh, it was one of uh, one of five girls that's still on my mom's side. So uh, we had big family gatherings, but also, you know, on my dad's side, we go down to his mom grew up in Mango, okay. uh, and so we we'd go down there and you know spend time together. But you know, every when I think about when I when I th think about what kind of guides me and and you know the examples that come to me is really a lot of my my grandparents and parents. They were small business owners. So mm -hmm. my mom's a physical therapist, had a small physical therapy clinic. But when I was younger, my my dad had a grocery store that was kind of family. You know, my great grandfather right. and then my granddad and my dad. What was the name of the store? Clayton's Grocery. Okay. And then Clayton's number two was the the one that my dad had. Okay. Uh, but you know, like when I think about what drives me mm -hmm. and what example that I I try to follow in in everything that that really is is one of the things that that comes back to me because it was a really drilled in that you know we treat our friends and neighbors with respect mm -hmm. and you know that's the the golden rule and I remember arguing with my mom about that yeah but if they're being mean to me you know <laughs> why can't I uh, and and learning that that's how we show up for each other um, my my great grandma called her mamma uh, is you know is near and dear to my heart I'm very fortunate she was around until I was in high school mm -hmm. and you know she raised five girls on her own during the middle of a depression uh, you know and lived through so much wow. from being born here mm -hmm. in a half dugout before statehood to going to California with a toddler during the Dust Bowl to coming back and you know she the way she took care of people she cooked she mm -hmm. cooked at the First Baptist Church she cooked at the Girl Scout camp and you know her example was always 
you know, they didn't have much, but there was never not an extra place to be set at the table if somebody really needed something right. or, you know, that's, that's just what was instilled in me and I feel very fortunate uh, about that. And did, did you ever work in the store, the, in the grocery store? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> well I was very small so uh, yes, but I still know how to bag groceries uh, you know very well so to this Congress day. thing doesn't work out. Absolutely, yeah. you know, I, I, and, and I remember you know getting a little older and watching people if, if I was somewhere else bag groceries and putting the heavy things on top and I think my dad would not have liked that very well. Uh, but yeah, I helped out when I was little but then you know I said my mom had a physical therapy clinic. So, you know, I saw how small businesses are really important to our communities. Mm -hmm. They created jobs, but it's not just, it's not just, you're just an employee. It was really a, you know, family relationship. Well, These were what, people so that industry were close was to me. A, in I'm sorry, I didn't mean to yeah. interrupt. No, I okay. apologize. Um, what, what industry was in Chicky? Like, what was the big uh, was it just a, it's a farming town or well or there's back then? there's a few there's mm. there's a few different things but mm. you know we had the the delta faucet uh okay. factory that was out there but you know i think uh, you know a combination just a smaller town i think mm. it's about fifteen thousand people but the interesting thing about uh, i live you know grew up just outside of town so mm. i had that combination of you know a little more rural and went to small school pioneer until i went to uh, until I went to high school into Chickasha, and uh -huh. yes, fighting chicks, of course. But <laughs> you know, a lot of people don't believe you. You go other places, and they say, "Well, what was your high school mascot?" Oh, it's a fighting chick, <laughs> and, and it still is, I guess. It is. Um, it is. Um, yeah. Years ago, the Henrietta—it was the Henrietta Hens, Henrietta I think—and yeah. they decided to go a different direction yeah. than that. Not Chickasha. But fighting chicks, man, they're sticking with Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Um, so. Absolutely. So, gotta ask you about the Girl Scouts, because yeah. um, yeah. one of the features of your town halls when yeah. you were doing live town halls, which were frequent, um, yeah. where the Girl Scouts doing the presentation of the colors yeah. and the, uh, that was a feature of, I think, almost yeah. every single one, and then leading the Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah. So they're obviously a big part of your Absolutely. background. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, we say, <clears throat> I often say I'm a fifth generation Oklahoman and a fourth generation Girl Scout. Okay. Uh, because, you know, it is, it, it played a role and it still plays a role in my life. Uh, I, my, I went on my very first trip uh, as a Girl Scout when I was six weeks old. Mm. Um, and yes, you heard that right. Uh, because uh, my great grandma, my mama, and my mom had a, a Girl Scout troop of junior high students and they were going to go camping. And so we went to National Center West and Wyoming, and that's you know that's 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 how my well, connection to Girl Scouts that, uh, started. Youngest, uh, no, <laughs> but there Girl should Scout be. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and when we <clears throat> when we were there, uh, my great grandma and I, Mama, uh, was the oldest person ever to go to National Center West, and I was the youngest. So we set that record uh, <laughs> going going through there. But I feel really fortunate because she was involved, and you know, so was my mom, and. Uh, you know, Girl Scouts really set a, a good foundation for mm -hmm. me. Not just not just because it was a thing that my family did, but I got wonderful opportunities to learn about a lot of things. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think back on some of the foundational things, from bicycle safety to you know how to interact in a business setting to you know doing all kinds of badges and discovery and science and mm -hmm. different things. Uh, but I also got to uh, see the world and. Uh, they have opportunities to apply for trips and uh, learn about different things. They're called wider opportunities. And so I got to go to different places and meet people and really build those skills and leadership and relationships that, uh, that, that taught me a lot and still stick with me. Uh, that's one of the reasons I'm still so involved with mm. the Girl Scouts. I'm one of three members of Congress who's earned their uh, Girl Scout Gold Award, oh. which is for those who don't know, uh, the equivalent of the Eagle Scout. Which is a big deal. Which is a big deal, which is a big deal. And, uh, and, and that is a project, and I served, uh, before I was elected, I served on the Girl Scout Gold Award Committee here uh, in, uh, in, in the Girl Scout uh, uh, Council that's mm -hmm. right here in Oklahoma City. Because the young women that are going through that, there's the silver, uh, bronze, silver, and then the gold, they have to come up with a, a project uh, all on their own uh, that is a service-oriented, something that they care about that will be sustainable mm -hmm. and you know impact their communities. And they, there's a lot of different things they have to do, and it's a lot of service hours. And, uh, and I think that's a, that's a really important way, at least for me, and I think for many others, to learn how to 
stretch yourself into a place that's uncomfortable right. uh, and to try new things and to identify problems and think about how you solve them. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think that's a, a wonderful tool. Uh, and also, you know, selling Girl Scout cookies yeah, when yeah. I was a kid, <laughs> great preparation for knocking on doors later uh, no, on. No kidding, uh, I didn't think of that. Because now they have the, the cookies, you know, they're already there. Yeah. Well, when I started selling cookies, you had to go and get the orders filled out and then go back. Sure. So we knocked on a lot of doors and sold a lot of Girl Scout cookies. So <laughs> that was that was very uh, that was a very formative experience. And I, I like to be able to talk to the girls and young women that that are involved right now and say, hey, listen, this is a great great foundation, and give let, back. Let me ask this: University of Tulsa. How did yeah. you happen to go there for your undergraduate? What was it that uh, appealed to that? And then on to yeah. SMU for law school. What, yeah. Tell me what. Yeah, well, some of the decisions were there. I went to, uh, you know, the University of Tulsa, I think, is, is, a, is a great school. Mm. Um, I've always had an interest in, uh, in policy uh, from the time I was young. Mm. I, I remember being fascinated with, uh, with the news and politics and, and understanding how things worked. And uh, University of Tulsa is just a really good school, um, had a great political science and English department. Um, I like the idea of having a you know, a place that was quality education, um, you know, not, mm -hmm. not, too, not too big classes. It, I just really felt like it was a good fit. Uh, and I, I think I had some incredible instruction and the ability to, to learn there. And I think I always, you know, thought from when I was young, I was probably going to go to law school because when you have that interest, uh, then in, in those type of things, it's almost a, it's almost yeah, yeah. a, uh, that's where you go. But you know, when I was at University of Tulsa, that's when I connected with and discovered uh, the Oklahoma Intercollegiate Legislature, mm -hmm. which I think is, there, there are not that many states that have the equivalent, uh, but I think it's really a fantastic thing that, that Oklahoma has because Governor Nye was one of the founders. It's been oh, around, yeah. we just had the 50th anniversary uh -huh. uh, celebration. Uh, and and it's, a, it's just such a great way to teach young people, not only about the systems, uh, because it's, you know, any college and university throughout the state of Oklahoma can come once a semester, and it's a whole mock state government. Uh, and we introduce bills. In fact, there's a lot of bills that have actually made their way into law because they came about, hmm. uh, learned about, uh, you know, a procedure, rules of procedure. Uh, and we, it's the whole government. I mean, all the way from governor, Supreme Court, all the way uh, to the House and the Senate. And, and it, but it also, one of the things that I come back to on a regular basis is it taught us um, how to relate to each other mm. and build those relationships across the aisle. And in fact, some of my closest friends still to this day, I've made through um, the, the OIL experience. And some of them, you know, many of them are Republicans. But we, we learned how to really... Any in office? Um, are there any in... Uh, some of them who have been, I'm, I'm, I think there probably still are some who are. There mm -hmm. are many who have been. There are some who are still involved, many who worked for people in office. Right. Uh, but there's, um, yeah, I'm sure there are still some that are, that are in office right now. Uh, but, you know, that's the thing we learned. You know, we would, you know go back and forth on issues and we would, you know, have really intense debates, but then be able to build those personal relationships and lifelong friendships that mm -hmm. actually help you get to a solution. Uh, and, and that's, I think that's valuable. We need more of that. You a, know? a dying art. Yeah. For sure. What, yeah. You, know, you talk about, uh, you know, this kind of political awareness you had. I mean, that would have been, I would, I would assume maybe this given, given your age, like late, Second term Reagan and into Bush so, one or yeah, it was, like, um, um, late night. So I graduated high school in ninety four. Okay. So it was Clinton, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was actually it was actually during Clinton, mm -hmm. um, and so it was an interesting time here in Oklahoma, right? Uh, we we had seen you know Oklahoma had, had a majority Democratic right. uh, legislature for in the since majority. Statehood. Yeah, yeah. It's history <laughs> since statehood. Yeah. Um, that was still there, but we saw we were seeing shifting patterns in the delegation. In the delegation, that happened. That was, um, that that was 1994. 94. Yeah. yeah, 94 was like the first year when a lot of that shifted. So it made for some, you know, really interesting uh, dynamics that you know you watch uh, now, and I think it's I think it's um, fascinating. Yeah, to see I think how there, that you know I think there are people, younger people, who who think Oklahoma has been a red yeah. state for and and yeah. presidentially it has been. Yeah, it has. But um, not not in the way no. that it is now. I mean, no. um, uh, you know, it was 
there were two Republican governors, I think, yeah. before the 80s when, when, when yeah. one of them was reelected yeah. um, years later. But I was going to ask you about Grady County because yeah. um, you know, where, Chicka, where Chickasha is. And yeah. um, I looked up some numbers um, the, as far back as it goes on the state election board, um, 1996, it was 70% Democrat uh, registration in um, 1996. It's 28% um, Democrat now. Um, so uh, really reflective uh, of the shift. I mean, most, most counties really were, were majority uh, Democrat in registration. And um, you know, I think that, that started with Clinton, you know, accelerated some, I think, uh, you know, under uh, President Obama. And it's, I, I, what, what I've seen, what I've heard, you know, is that that's largely shaped by national political figures, you yeah. know, more than what the internal state uh, politics, that it's really kind of reaction to, you know, who they see on TV every night as president or, or whatever. And that um, kind of brings to mind House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, um, who has been a big part of this uh, you know, the opposition campaign to you. Who's, you know, she's in almost every opposition, uh, opposition ad. And I was wondering, you know, I mean, rather than getting in kind of the back and forth about how often you vote with her, you know, a lot of people don't realize that she doesn't vote that often. She actually yeah. has voted, I think, less than 70 times yeah. or something. Yeah. Uh, but the, the figure is correct. I mean, it's 86%, I think. But if you're reelected, and, and there's almost no chance that, from what I understand, that the Republicans would regain the House. I mean, it seems like Democrats may actually increase their majority. Are, are, would you vote for her again? Well, you know, I, I don't know. Uh -huh. I, I have to know who's running and, right. and what, what's, what's happening. And that's, you know, the, the commitment I always make with anything that's going to come up. I got to know what I'm dealing with right. uh, before I make that commitment. Uh, but I certainly think that I have shown that I'm not afraid to stand up for Oklahoma and I will continue to do that. Uh, and, and to me, um, part of this back and forth and attacking on, on somebody else's actions uh, really distracts from the real issues and mm -hmm. having a conversation that is based on records and what we've done. I mean, I think I've I think I've demonstrated that and will continue to do that because, you know, one of the problems, you've discussed what, what's happened in this state, um, and I think what's happening more broadly is feels like there's a chasm that's growing, but, but I don't think that there is amongst most people. It just mm. feels that way. Yeah. This us versus them, like, I can't talk to you because you're an X or a Y. Uh, I think that's one of the things that's the most harmful, uh, that, that if we want to get things done, in most times, we, we've got to reach across the aisle to do it. And I think that's healthy. I mean, I think right. having that tension helps us question our preconceptions. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think that having unexpected messengers also helps because, you know, a lot of people presume that this is what a Democrat believes or this is. Right. And, you know, quite frankly, I have major disagreements with the speaker uh, and others on some pretty big issues. Mm -hmm. Now, um, I, I think that's why it's important for us to have representatives that are going to question things, not be a rubber stamp for, I don't care which party it is. Right. Like, I just don't think that's the way that representation should work because I don't represent uh, the Democrats in the 5th District or the people that voted for me. I represent everyone and needing to take all of those things into account. Uh, but certainly these are uh, tactics that have been around for a long time. And, there, and, there, and that's, you know, there, is, there is a certain amount of blame to be put on the media for this. I mean, having been there for yeah. many years, I understand there's a lot more relationships yeah. up there than ever get reported. I mean, it's the rare one like, um, you know, the late um, Senator Coburn and, and President Obama. Yeah. Um, Senator Inhofe and um, former California Senator Barbara Boxer. You, you, there are some that kind of get some attention for, for whatever reason, but really there are a lot. There are yes. a lot of friendships among yes. people of different parties. I mean, people who you know, might even visit each other in their own districts. I think Mark Wayne Mullen, um, Congressman Mullen, and, um, and uh, Representative Kennedy from Massachusetts yeah. have, have become friends. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's common, actually. Exactly. It's not, it's not like, like you guys are in one corner. You know, you say across exactly. the aisle all the time yeah. as if there's this, you know, real literal split among, among you, but 
truly, you know, and on some committees, yeah. like Armed Services is exactly. a very bipartisan committee for the most part. There is not a lot of public fighting. I know you guys have some, you know, private meetings sometimes, who knows what goes on, but on national security issues, there really is a lot of um, bipartisan work. Yeah, that, I mean, there really is, and that's one of the things that I and I love about the committees that I get to serve on is that they are the committees that, uh, well, well, at least yeah, some of the committees, yeah, right. sci yeah, yeah, science based and technology, yeah, no, no. they're both that way. Uh, and, you know, in armed services, we don't agree on everything. There are places that we can have that healthy debate. But, you know, we voted the authorization bill out of committee 560 right. this year. Which is common. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, it, and it should be you, that you way. You have a ton of amendment votes that go on for yeah. days, right? I mean, you guys kind of cover the clock sometimes, yeah. I think, don't you? But, yeah. but at the end. Yeah. But at the end, we come together mm -hmm. and we get a, a, a bill that we can all, we can all agree on. Uh, is it perfect? No. But I think, I think you're right. I mean, it's, there's, there are many contributing factors, and I think the way that our, the way that our political life is covered right now and with social media and everything that goes right. into it, the more sensational, the more eyeballs, the more coverage, the more mm -hmm. clicks. Uh, and that's what you know leads to things like that. Like, you know, for example, in the the class that was elected in 2018, uh, if you look at a lot of the coverage, you'd think there were about three new members of the Democratic majority, yeah, yeah. and they're all so far left. But really, the majority of us that, that came in are more uh, moderate. We're mm -hmm. more we're a little closer to the center. We're not extreme, uh, but. I also think we don't throw those like big verbal firebombs and you know say things that are as sensational because we want to get things done. Right. Uh, and you know on on science based and technology, I get to serve with Frank Lucas. Yeah, he's yeah. the ranking uh, member. Yes. We work together. Uh -huh. There's a lot of bipartisan stuff that comes yeah. out of there too. And he's he definitely is one that oh, yeah. uh, people of both parties just love Lucas and yes. Tom Cole. Yes. You know, Absolutely. Tom Cole is a, uh, wins praise from Democrats all the time on appropriations for yeah. how and rules yeah. for how willing he is to work with them. Um, yeah. when, when, and, and you are part of a, a caucus um, called the Problem Solvers yes. that uh, last month came up with what looked like to be kind of a splitting the baby type of mm -hmm. uh, plan for more coronavirus yeah. relief. Had all the basic elements in there, none of the kind of things that you said were not timely targeted and uh, transparent. And it seemed like the speaker went out of her way to, to diss it, you know? I mean, I, I was a little surprised by the, she, first she said that we're not gonna um, really look at that, I think at a news conference, but then she had that letter released by uh, the committee chair and you're just like, that's like, extraordinary. I mean, why, why, why react like that to it? I mean, what, what, what's your response to that? I mean, it seemed like it was a plan that might get some traction. Uh, my response to that was, I was, I, I have to say, I was, I was shocked and, mm -hmm. and disappointed uh, at that, at that reaction. Um, but I think, I think a couple of things. The Problem Solvers Caucus is the example of what we should be doing and how we. Twenty-five Democrats, twenty-five exactly, Republicans. Um, and and it's and it's members, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just. I mean, we've got staff that are fantastic. I, we couldn't do it without our teams. But, I mean, how we got there was we had regular ongoing conversations, member to member conversations. Of course, in this environment, most of them were via Zoom mm -hmm. um, instead of getting in, in the same room while we were you know, away over uh, you know, August and we were still working. Uh, but you know, I think, I, I wonder if, if sometimes that, that narrative of, of this tension of back and forth of uh, us versus them doesn't feed into that. Hmm. And I was, I was disappointed to, to hear, to, to see that reaction. I think you probably saw my reaction that, yeah. you know, quite frankly, um, I w disappointed, maybe a little bit gentle. I was, I was very unhappy. It was, it um, wasn't, it was to see that reaction. It was, you know, it was just seemed, I don't know what the word would be, but it yeah. was surprising. It was surprising yes. for her to take that step to yes. have that kind of, you know, yeah. slap down of it at, yeah. at that point. But one thing I wanted to ask you about yeah. these packages, um, and of course that package had, you know, unemployment, yeah. small yes. business, more direct payments, yes. um, uh, more money for testing. Uh, the, the one element of some of these packages that, I, that I, I, I'm kind of wondering about is the state and local aid. Yeah. Um, I think there was 500 billion more in that, yeah. which seems like um, quite a lot. Yes. 
And in Oklahoma, you know, you had localities that seemingly didn't know what to do with the money they already had. Um, Oklahoma County decided to build a new jail with it or commit it to uh, building a new jail. Oklahoma, state of Oklahoma, announced this week that they're going to use some for a new public health lab, which I don't think that was ever really, you know, these kinds of capital projects was ever really the idea of, uh, you know, this is that you guys passed that CARES Act package when it was really just, Nobody has an infrastructure to deal with this. Nobody has the PPE to deal with this, um, personal protective equipment. We just need to get the money. And not, we don't want them to worry about money. Let's give them the money. That, let's, so why more local and state aid? Well, there were a couple of things that happened in the CARES, in the CARES Act, mm-hmm. some uh, restrictions around the funding that I think have led to um, less than desirable uh, expenditures. Okay. Let's, let's put it that way. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, framing that up. Uh, and I think that's been one of the places of contention mm-hmm. uh, because in the CARES Act, uh, the uh, only places that got direct funding were cities or counties of 500,000 people or more. Mm-hmm. So it didn't, there was no direct aid that were going to the smaller towns. Um, the state could give them the small, some, couldn't they? They could, could they, not, they could. It had, state mentioned, yeah, yeah. it had to go through the state. Okay. But there was also a restriction on, uh, on, the, on the local governments from using it to make up for shortfalls in revenue. Right. And, and part of that's coming from, I think you've seen it in talking points from uh, McConnell and some of the right that they didn't want to bail out um, different blue states. Yeah, exactly. But the reality Mm. is there were a lot of state and local governments that saw a very real drop in revenue so inst- and that they needed to make up for that goes to, you know, police, fire, sanitation, first responders, a lot of those core uh, components of their budget that was a a drop as a result of COVID-19. And Mm -hmm. I think you know, that was one of the shortcomings of the funding that was included in the CARES Act because I think it could have been more wisely directed. And that's one of the things that we we addressed in the problem solvers package, that we didn't just add on top of it. We, uh, our, our roadmap would have let state and local governments use those funds to make up for uh, budget shortfalls as, as, as a result of COVID-19. Okay. So they had to, they would have to prove it, right? So, that's the way that you know you know, split the split yeah. the difference, right? We're not bailing people out who are irresponsible before. The same thing with, you know, we're talking about small businesses and PPP. Those that that program was has been incredibly helpful, mm-hmm. uh, and it wasn't intended to bail people out who were already in trouble. Right. Uh, it was intended to help Keep businesses. Keep people on your payroll. Exactly. For, yeah. So yeah. they didn't they didn't go on unemployment right away. Exactly. Yeah. But. There is still a great need because there are a lot of I've talked to um, I've talked to state and local leaders, especially uh, municipalities who wanted and needed to apply for CARES Act funding, but were told they couldn't use it for the things that they really needed to use it for those those kind right. of expenses. Right, I heard the, the lack of flexibility. Yeah. is kind of a thing. And and so I think that's what was in there. And I and I don't know um, you know I don't I don't know what the why why the reaction was as it was if it wasn't if, if the idea that it wasn't enough or I think there were maybe some reports that there wasn't state and local funding in there I'm not sure but to me the bottom line is uh, it, we can sit here and point fingers as much as we want to but you know people are hurting I've, right. we've got businesses here that are on their last leg and this isn't about just federal government coming in this is our role it, it's in times of emergency um, that we really need to step right. up. And, that, and that's what I want to talk to you about, because this has been a, yeah. a, a six-month emergency, a yeah. pandemic. How, how do you think the Trump uh, administration has handled the coronavirus? And, and what about him personally? Do you think he was careless? Do you think he um, and, and some of the inner uh, circle there uh, at the White House got COVID-19 because they were careless? Well, I think a pandemic is something not of this scale. None mm. of us, none of us, have ever lived through this. So the significance of the health and economic consequences, and what it's meant for our day-to-day lives, uh, has just been almost <clears throat> all-consuming. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that, the best way to address the economic impact is to listen to our public health officials. And mm. the advice of public health officials um, has been, you know, once we figured out 
and, and I think that's a piece of it. We didn't know at first, right? Mm -hmm. It's a novel virus. Once we figured out that transmission could be reduced with masks and social distance and hand washing and certain steps, uh, following those uh, steps and advice is one of the most effective ways to reduce the transmission. We're not really going to get everything restarted until we get the numbers down. And I think it's really unfortunate and unnecessary that things like uh, those public health recommendations uh, were turned into political footballs. That mm. The things that should never have been politicized were politicized. And I think, it's, I think it has gotten in the way of a, a speedier recovery. Uh, and unfortunately, I think has resulted in increased rates of transmission and um, in, you know, we have 210,000 plus deaths right now. Right. So to me, what we need in, in a time like this is we need thoughtful, you know, planned leadership that follows the advice of science. It doesn't mean we're going to agree on everything. I mean, I'll take the problem solvers caucus. We'll mm. go back to the very beginning. We also put out a a roadmap that said these are the things that we really need to do. Follow the uh, advice of public health experts. We need to do these things with health. We need to do these things with the economy. And there were a lot of places of overlap. Now, I'll tell you, there are places we disagreed. It wasn't, we didn't just say, oh, this is great. Let's mm. just, this is perfect. We, we all agree on this. It took us weeks of real conversations with each other to get there. And I think it's worthwhile. But I, I think making sure that we're, setting a good example about listening to public health official, officials and, and putting good information out there uh, is helpful for our ability to relate to each other, our ability to reduce the transmission of the virus, and to, to restart the economy. And I think framing things as either economy or health, and, and we've seen it on both sides, right? You know, some people just, it's all about the health, you know, not about the economy. That doesn't work either the best way to restart is is to um, is is to do both things well, well, and and I think an example I, I think we need to be setting that kind of example one, one thing that um, you know was was really a focus early on was the PPE and mm -hmm. that, you know that this where these warehouses full of you know expired yeah. PPE that were half full and and just not being able to mobilize yeah. This, this critical equipment yes. to healthcare providers, you know, quickly, which puts some of them at risk. Yes. Um, what, what, are, what, what should Congress be doing now? I mean, I mean, you don't want to look back and say, and in the meantime, while we were dealing with, we, we failed to um, prepare for the next one, because yeah. there will be yeah. an, another one. I don't think there's any doubt about no. that. So, so what, what, what should Congress's focus be maybe the beginning of the next Congress yeah. beginning in January. Well, I, I mean, think we, yeah, we still have to be dealing with this, but I think course, you're right. right. We absolutely need to plan looking forward. And, you know, if well, you talk to... A, I mean, what happened here, I, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's okay. But what happened here, what happened in every state yeah. was that, you know, had these governors yes. scrambling, yes. you know, hiring these kind of shifty yeah. <laughs> um, contractors who had no experience, you know, selling PPE. Yeah. And it, it was just like every yes. governor for himself. Yes, um, that's a problem, um, right? That that approach is a problem because in a time of a, a national pandemic, it's not like, say, we had a tornado here, right? Mm. Then you would send, you know, FEMA would come in, and it would be a state-directed response, right? This is a national pandemic, and that's, you know, if you talk to any anyone who has a career in emergency response, you have to have a clear chain of communications and layered response that ensures that the supplies get where they're most needed most efficiently and effectively. And that's really what was needed mm -hmm. during the response to this pandemic. So you didn't have that competition. So that's one piece of this. And what we need is a national strategy, uh, expired PPE and things right. like that in our, and in our national stockpiles is a sort of a failure of ongoing management of mm -hmm. those stockpiles. And we need to make sure that we have a, a, a plan in place that keeps them stocked. And then there's a way to rotate them out, right? It, once they hit a certain point, they can be distributed, mm -hmm. you know, purchased by, you know, hospitals here in Oklahoma or wherever else to make sure that you're not letting things get expired uh, and and making sure that you're keeping those going. But we also have to have a plan. You're right. I mean, all of the public health experts say it's not an 
if but a when. Right. Uh, and, and then as Congress, we also need to do a few things. It's highlighted the lack of uh, domestic manufacturing capabilities, um, especially yes. on PPE, yeah. on um, critical drugs, on other things. The testing and materials the themselves. Testing. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we need to, and I co-sponsored a couple of bills that would, that would address this, address uh, strategic national stockpile and supplies, encourage uh, manufacturing of these things domestically. It doesn't mean we have to bring everything mm. here, but without a domestic capability, we saw all the things that you mentioned. Companies that had no experience, we've seen um, counterfeit things coming in from right. China and other countries that we have to, you know, we have to maintain vigilance uh, about what's coming in and the quality but uh, we, we need to incentivize and rebuild a domestic manufacturing base uh, and make sure that we have a stockpile that is, that is stocked and is properly rotated so that if something like this comes along again, we're ready to respond. But it does require a great deal of planning and preparation. Yeah. And I do think a, a nationally coordinated response would have had much different outcomes right. than competition between the states. Let, let me shift to healthcare yeah. real quick. It's you know an issue in this race, obviously, probably yeah. around the country. There's an, yet another Affordable Care Act case before the U.S. Supreme Court. I don't know what the chances are, but it came from um, circuit court in Texas that basically said because the individual mandate is no longer enforced, um, the whole you know all these other parts crumble. Um, and uh, last night in the in your first debate, you know, you you made the point that uh, Senator Bice that Republicans don't have a plan for replacing it. Yeah. What, um, but what, what could occur um, if, you know, if, if current you know, projections are right is that Democrats are in charge, maybe, in, maybe of the White House, maybe both houses of Congress, but certainly of one. So it's really not gonna be up to them to replace it. It'll be up to you, uh, your party, uh, to replace it. What, what, what would you replace it with? Well. Let's, let's take a step back about why it's such a bad idea to try to pull the rug out from under these critical protections during the midst of a pandemic. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's where I think we, we can do that start. as long as yeah, we yeah. answer my question. Yeah, yeah, I will, I will. <laughs> but like, you know, think about that. I mean, the, the, there are hundreds of thousands of people here in the state that, that are impacted right. by pre-existing conditions. I mean, estimates are, and I think, you know, who knows if these are high or low. I, mean, I think they're probably... We've got more uh, as people uh, continue to, to get older, 700,000 plus Oklahomans with pre-existing conditions. And you know, without those protections, uh, it, there are a lot of outcomes that could, that could negatively impact people and, and will because before the ACA was in place, people could be denied coverage. Uh, the costs were so exorbitant for mm. people with any pre-existing conditions that many of them went without health insurance. Right. And Oklahoma still has the second highest rate of uninsured in the country. Hopefully to go down next year with the implementation of the Medicaid which expansion. Which would be lost if- uh, Yeah, which would if be the, lost. If, if ACA is struck yeah. down. So that's uh, more than a million Oklahomans right. that we're talking about. But- We should say too about the, to cover people with pre-existing conditions yeah. is to, to tell insurance companies they have to cover them is to say that you have to cover the highest risk, yes. most, most um, expensive patients that, yeah. that are in this state and create that pool of those people and that the whole idea though the struggles of policymakers for decades has been how do you get healthy people into yes. that pool yes. to bring those costs down so exactly. how if the ACA is is, uh, is basically dismantled how do you how do you get healthy people into the pool with the more expensive people well I think we have to go back to something that looks like the bones of, of the ACA because mm -hmm. I certainly don't think throwing the whole system out um, and, and doing something completely different uh, is smart or advisable, um, and I don't think it's, I don't think it's realistic. Could I, it I lead, just, uh, I mean, I, I know you're against Medicare yeah. for all, you said that um, yeah. for a long time. Yeah. But could it lead to that? I mean, if Democrats can't go through that whole, you know, exercise that uh, the Clintons did and then uh, President Obama did of trying to craft this, you know, kind of, multi-piece thing where it all fits together and hopefully works um could you just say okay we'll just uh we'll just go to medicare for all then. i don't think so um and i don't think so and certainly in the short term mm -hmm. because what what is what is clear 
from the ACA and from the implementation over the past decade uh, is that uh, the the protections that were put in the ACA, it wasn't perfect. I mean, we, we can all acknowledge mm-hmm. that. Premiums have, have gone up pre- and deductibles have gone up. It's expensive yes, still. It is expensive But health care is expensive. Health care is expensive. And yeah. it's gone down. And some of, the, uh, some of the supports that were put into place originally in the ACA to uh, address the cost and keep them down have been stripped out over the course of the, the past right, decade. Right. And so it's... It is partially because healthcare is expensive, but partially because the the things that were put into the ACA to ensure affordability have been removed. Mm-hmm. And the only way, really, to make sure you get younger, healthier people in these pools is by making sure that you're doing your best to require. Uh, that's where the individual that, mandate came. That's from. where the yeah. individual and the subsidies mandate. exactly mm-hmm. uh, because. If you can't, if you can't afford it, and you or you're denied insurance, you're only going to have people that are the the sickest, and then they're not going to be able to afford the coverage, mm-hmm. which takes us back to a place I don't think we want to be, uh, because when we're talking about healthcare, I mean it's it's a it's an issue for all of us because it's it's about quality of life, but it's also a real economic issue. Of course, you know I, I had a we had a, a town hall uh, with uh, uh, with some earlier today with like uh, Dean Gary Raskov from OU College of Public Health and Luke Carmichael and a number of other healthcare leaders uh, talking about the, the challenges that they're facing and uh, and you know what what evidence shows is that from the ACA's implementation we've seen uninsured rates go down significantly as well as cost I mean mm-hmm. it is still expensive we do have to address that we have to address the deductibles, because some people, yeah. you know, they're, they're out exactly. thousands of dollars uh, a yes. year that they may not have. Just Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard. I mean, um, it's, it's, this is not an easy thing to solve, which is why I also, um, which is why I also am not a fan of <clears throat> Medicare for All, because we still have issues with Medicare that we need to fix. Mm-hmm. You know, we're fighting to make sure that we're taking care of the Medicare trust right now. Right. Um, the, one of the, one of the it's just years away from, yeah. from not being able to meet its exactly. obligations. Um, yeah. 2023 mm-hmm. and Social Security in 2031. That's why I'm, you know, a, a co-sponsor of the Trust Act. Some people say that this is a way of undoing them, and I say, actually, no, it's not. It's just the opposite. If we don't act, we're going to lose these critical protections. Mm-hmm. So to me, um, making sure that we're expanding something that we already need to fix doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense right. to me. And that's why, and there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of people and companies that have really good health insurance plans. So why would we want to do away with that if it's working for some people, we've got to focus on the protections and, you know, putting some parameters and uh, holding drug companies and insurance companies accountable. The only reason that insurance companies switched over to covering people with pre-existing conditions was because of the ACA. So I yeah, don't. They were, they were required to. Y- yeah, they were. Required <laughs> but they were to. given, you know, they were given the promise that yeah. you will have other patients, yes. you will have other customers yes. to 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 bring the cost down. Yes. And so, as an investment, if, if we have healthier people, the more we make sure that people have insurance and access to ongoing preventative mm. care, we get a healthier population. And that actually saves money in the long run. So it's like, to me, it's like public education. That's an upfront investment in our future. Um, public health and investing and in making sure that we've got healthier populations actually has a dramatic economic benefit uh, because then people aren't missing work as much. You have a lower instance of significant health uh, concerns that prevent people from working if they aren't able to get care until they are so bad they literally can't work anymore. Uh, so to me, I think about it from a human perspective, but also uh, you know, from a long-term economic perspective, if we want to reduce these long-term costs of really expensive treatments, then we know certain things are preventable. So we should prevent as much as possible. Yeah. And, and that was part of the yeah. ACA. It made a lot of prevention yeah. Uh, yeah. Requi- free. Under, yeah. Yeah. Uh, let me, um, speaking of long-term, yeah. long-term thinking, I, w- I wanted to get to climate change befo- yeah. before we Absolutely. run out of time. And, and I know that you're not um, a sponsor of the Green New Deal, not a supporter of the Green New Deal. So I really just want to get, get from you some two or three um, ideas from you about uh, 
And, and, and along with that, let's talk about the fossil fuel industry yeah. and the votes that, yeah. um, uh, that, that are being uh, part of these, these ads running against yeah. you. There were four amendment votes. Yes. Three of them um, had to do with drilling in one off the coast, one mm -hmm. off the Gulf, one off uh, uh, the coast of you know, the, the Atlantic coast, and then in Anwar, mm -hmm. uh, the Arctic National Wildlife yeah. Refuge. Uh, those amendments would, would have barred drilling in those, and even the, um, it, off the Atlantic coast, even the exploration, like even to begin looking at drilling off the Atlantic coast. The fourth had to do with methane um, leakage yeah. from, uh, yeah. uh, from drilling operations. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, where, where, so obviously, you have some some feeling about yeah. where the fossil fuel industry fits into yeah. climate change and uh, and and what should happen with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I think my votes, those votes, have mm -hmm. been absolutely wholly mischaracterized, and the claims about the impact on Oklahoma's oil and gas industry are absolutely false and have been debunked. Mm -hmm. I'll lay it out. The votes about limiting offshore drilling. Not one single Oklahoma headquartered company drills offshore. Right, Devin not gave one. it up years ago. Exactly. Yeah. There's not one. They are they are uh, international conglomerate companies. Uh, they they don't they don't drill here. Right. Uh, so that's not that's not hurting any Oklahoma companies, right? Uh, the Anwar, to my knowledge, and we reached out. I've talked to Oklahoma companies. No, no Oklahoma company has plans to drill in Anwar. We'll take the, I'll take the methane vote separately in just a moment. Okay. But let's be clear. Like, we need, uh, as uh, climate change is real, we have to follow the science, but we need an all-of-the-above approach. I think mm -hmm. I, I absolutely uh, do not support the Green New Deal. It is not, the, it is not well thought out. Uh, it would have opposite impacts. We do need to address climate change, but we need an all-of-the-above approach. Mm -hmm. It has to have oil and gas as a piece of it. Right now, 80% of our energy infrastructure is based on hydrocarbons. Mm -hmm. But we also know, this is one of the reasons I oppose a federal ban on fracking when some people in my party proposed it, I absolutely stood up and said no, because the uh, ability to use natural gas as uh, a bridge. component, as uh, a bridge and as uh, a component of our, uh, our energy infrastructure has done a few things that are very important. One, it's reduced the cost uh, to households of, of energy. Mm -hmm. That's critical, especially when we're talking about families that are just struggling to make right. ends meet. Two, it's a national security issue because by uh, the investments that we've made domestically, instead of having to import oil and gas, we have it domestically. So mm -hmm. that's a national security issue. And it also actually empowers us to be able to compete with some of our adversaries like Russia and- It's uh, changed and, and it's, that, that, those relationships absolutely, completely. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. So we no longer have to rely on them. And mm -hmm. in fact, we could you know, sell to our allies. And, and, and so that, those are important pieces of the puzzle. But let me talk about the impact on environment. Uh, right here, just, just taking uh, OG&E, mm. in their transition from coal-fired power plants to natural, natural gas-fired power plants, they've reduced their harmful greenhouse gas emissions by 40%. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, that I With bring... With wind and that, gas? Wind, yeah, yeah. But, but the primary driver of that mm -hmm. is, is coal to natural gas. Right. And they've incorporated wind and solar. Mm. Because Oklahoma is an energy state, it's a... Uh, you know, it's oil and gas, but it's also wind and solar. We're leading the way in a lot of different arenas, and we need an all-of-the-above approach to in order to get there. Uh, the, the, the vote on the, the methane pipeline, um, I think it's actually uh, I think it's actually good for both environment and ultimately uh, oil and gas companies. I know it's, you know, reducing leaks, but if we lose less methane, first of all, there's less going into... Uh, the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So we're addressing that, uh, but it also ensures that more of the products can be delivered. And I think it's a part of a smart approach. It's mm -hmm. not saying you can't have pipelines. It's not saying, you know, we're going to quit this. It's let's be smart and make sure that we're building things in a safe way and monitoring and reducing leaks. I mean, to me, that's common sense, mm -hmm. right? That is just common sense. Uh, it was and, the enforcement of an EPA, EPA rule about. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and we was, need that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. And, and so, 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 so to just like go back to what it means environmentally, mm -hmm. look, I, I mentioned earlier my mamaw, uh, and I talk about her a lot. I, Oklahomans, those of us that have been here for a long time, understand the importance 
of taking care of our environment, mm -hmm. of taking care of our land, our conserving water, and all of these right. things, because otherwise you end up like my great grandmother uh, in a truck going to California right. with the toddler on your lap because we have the Dust Bowl. Right. So to me, this is another example of this either or approach being really detrimental. Mm -hmm. The Green New Deal, first of all, it's not even it's not even a bill. It doesn't have like it just does not actually have any reasonable solutions. Mm -hmm. And thus, I just don't even take it seriously, to right. be honest, um, because it's so blatantly ridiculous. Um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't take action to address issues of climate change, right? right? But we have to do it in a smart and sustainable way, encouraging development of alternative uh, and renewable energy sources uh, while understanding that a transition that businesses and industries can count on has to be a part of that. And how do we use them to have a longer term sustainable investment in energy? You know, one of the things we're seeing in California right now is their inability to keep the lights on. Right, because right. They have these don't, mandates. Right, yeah, for, they've got um, these mandates that don't match up with the reality of where our And they have a new one, I think, is. for when you, you can no longer buy a car yeah. with a um, yeah. com, uh, combustible uh, yeah. engine. And the, yeah, and, and, and the problem there is that doesn't take into account the impacts on the marginalized communities that some people say they're concerned about. Because when we're talking about communities and, and, and households that are just struggling to get by, mm -hmm. they can't afford to replace all of their appliances if someplace like Oakland suddenly decides you can't have natural gas. Um, they can't afford to, you know, families can't necessarily afford to go out and buy a, a new car and, and shift everything over. The infrastructure is not there. We need is long-term investments that build things up and allow for a transition. But what's harmful is not doing anything mm -hmm. because it pushes us further back. I mean, sitting on armed services, I know that one of the biggest concerns and national security threats is sea level rise mm -hmm. and is climate change. So we have to address it. They've been it. dealing with it for years out there, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. They, oh, especially trying, Norfolk is, yeah. yeah. It, you know. Well, they've been trying to even war plan, I think, you know, exactly. based on, uh, you know, what, what may happen. Oh, they have. Change. Absolutely. And so I think that's a, to me, we, we should be concerned about our environment and, and, and climate change is real and we have to follow the science, but we need to do so in a smart and sustainable way because we could either take reasonable steps now um, or we're going to fall further behind but if we try to shift everything all at once, it's going to have a lot of other harmful effects. So, you know, I, I work and we reach out. I talk to oil and gas industry and I work with them on an ongoing basis because I understand the importance of oil and gas as an overall part of right. our energy. And, and so that's why the, you know, these attacks are, they're just a part of that same old, like, this is us versus them, and they're just flatly not true. I, I just got the signal. I've, yeah. I've taken up way too much <laughs> of your time already, but I don't want to leave without getting yeah. to um, uh, you know the, what's happened this the, this year with um, with the, uh, the the police the the issues of local policing. You know what we've seen the horrific uh, some of the horrific scenes that that we've seen with police um, action and, uh, and and what followed. Yeah. Um, in some cases. So I want to talk about, you know, local policing and what really what the federal role here is. I mean, I, I know that you, you are not an advocate of defunding the police. And I think the House passed a bill that would ban chokeholds. Um, and, and it created some kind of database for um, police misbehavior, but I'm not really sure how yeah. that would work. Yeah. Um, so why, why don't you tell me what, you know, what can be done yeah. uh, on, on the federal level? I think there's there are a number of things that we can do on the federal level, and you're right. I don't support defunding the police. We need our we need our police. Uh, they're public safety officers. They're they're really critical. Um, and uh, what we saw this summer really calls upon us to look at what's working and what's not, mm -hmm. so we can hold bad actors accountable. It's really not something that should ever be the case. If somebody's afraid to interact with the police because of the color of their that skin. That bill also re removed qualified immunity, didn't it? I mean, it was, is that a way to deal so with it's, it? It's, I mean, there's, it didn't totally remove qualified okay. immunity. So we'll talk, I'll talk for just a second about what it did okay. um, and what we need to address. You're right, it, it banned chokeholds, uh, banned racial profiling. It includes a nationwide police misconduct database. Okay. Um, and now that doesn't mean 
for officers that it's just anybody that makes an accusation that would fall into that database. It has to be proven. But one of the challenges right now is that those bad actors can go to another department right. without any disclosure. Mm -hmm. um, now, looking at the issues, that the, one of the stickiest things, one of the most challenging issues is qualified immunity. Mm -hmm. uh, because we do need, when people are working uh, on behalf of a government, that they need to be able to know that they are, you know, that they, in doing their duties as they have been laid out, have some protections. But the problem with qualified immunity is the way that it's been interpreted, mm -hmm. and it's gone through the court system, and it's basically been interpreted to such the point if there has not been the exact same scenario uh, that has happened before with the exact same things, that it's, it's very, very narrow. Mm -hmm. um, now, I know this is a challenging area for us to talk about, but I also think that there's there's room for bipartisan solutions, and we absolutely need to take action. Right. The reason I say this, I'm going to go back to the problem solvers for just a moment, uh, because in the wake of all of this, this summer, we've been sitting down and talking about this. Mm -hmm. Even after I did support George Floyd Justice and Policing, because I think it's a step in the right direction, and it's actionable solutions. At the federal level, we're not going to control you know, individual budgets in cities right. or states. But what we can do is influence federal dollars mm -hmm. uh, and ensure which best they count practices. On, which which yeah. local law enforcement, <clears throat> you know, they, they have to pay attention to Exactly. That. Mm -hmm. And we can do it in a number of ways. Like mm -hmm. if you meet these certain best practices standards, then you qualify for federal funds. If you mm -hmm. don't, then you don't. So it's an incentive-based right. kind of model. Uh, but uh, even before that, I had introduced a uh, bill uh, to provide funding for police departments uh, to learn how to respond to mental health crisis situations. Mm, yeah, Bipartisan. Right. Um, and honestly, this that, that bill, I'm, I'm really proud of the fact that uh, it's got a companion bill in the Senate and the House uh, and has been endorsed by everyone locally from the local NAACP and Black Lives Matter to the National Fraternal Order of Police uh, Tactical Officers Association. Alliance, the National yeah, Alliance. It passed on easily, um, <clears throat> yeah. but bogged down in the Senate like everything. Yeah, yeah. And <clears throat> anyway, but we also set down problem solvers. We, mm. we have a task force of us talking through these things and mm. figuring out a way to get to some more actionable. And we haven't stopped, right? It passed through the House, but again, it, things are stuck in the Senate. But we haven't stopped mm. working on it. And what I know from those conversations is there are productive pathways forward. We're still not going to agree on everything, but actionable and productive pathways forward that, that aren't just about talking about it, that would really make a difference. Um, and they're hard. Mm -hmm. like, these are hard conversations to have. They're important conversations to have. It is important that we take action. Uh, but I think that these hard conversations can't be boiled down to either you support the system as it is, or you want to eliminate it. Mm -hmm. Because that's not really the choice that we have in front of us. There are a lot of other issues that have led to the systemic injustice, and we have to address them, uh, including the weight that we're putting on our police officers mm -hmm. to respond to all of these things. Right. So I think the pathway forward is through more of these conversations. We're going to have to continue to take steps. Uh, and I think I think the Justice and Policing Act was an important one. Um, is there room for maybe some more conversation and maybe it looks a little bit different on the other side of it? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. But I think there's I think there's a pathway to something better here. Yeah, if, if people want, want, want to get there. Yeah. Um, I'm going to let yeah. you go, but I, I, I do want to ask you one other question. I, I think I know the answer to it, yeah. and that is, would you commit to the same kind of town hall schedule in a second term that you've had? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, you seem That's to. That's easy. Uh, actually, yeah, I, I, I figured easy. you would say that. You yeah. were um, sometimes two or three a month pre-pandemic, yeah. um, standing yeah. up. Uh, and it, it's important for people yeah. to, to, uh, to be able to come ask you pretty much anything. I yeah. think we heard yeah. um, at, at some of them. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's how I found out about <clears throat> the problems with military housing. Right. That's Your how we got one, the, think, yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Very first one, Tenants' Bill of Rights. We got that. That's how we do it. You know, mm. it's not quite that. We've been doing virtual town halls. They're not, they don't have quite the same uh, ability to just interact. Right. I mean, we, we still are taking a bunch of questions, but it, it's not quite the same. So uh, absolutely. And because I think that's, that's my job, mm -hmm. right? It's to be thoughtful about policy, but it's also to listen to and understand how Oklahomans are experiencing the things that we're doing where they need help. And, 
you know, I'm, I'm really proud of the work that we've done in this first term to help Oklahomans. We've helped more than uh, 20, I think we're at 2,300 people now recovering um, $3.5 million in taxpayer funds. We've helped more than 115 small businesses with PPP and other, uh, and other loan programs just during the pandemic, more than 800 people with their unemployment benefits mm-hmm. during the pandemic, uh, hundreds of veterans. I mean, I could go on. And that's, I find out about it's that. It's kind of the hidden those. work of congressional offices. Exactly. Yeah, yeah and we really. find out about some yeah. of that through these town halls as yeah. well. Yeah. Congresswoman, thanks again so much for coming in. Yeah. And, and thanks so much for wa- watching again on uh, Tuesday, October 13th at 2 p.m. We'll have Republican State Senator Stephanie Bice, who is uh, the opponent uh, of Congresswoman Horn in the 5th Congressional District. I hope you'll join us or look for it on Oklahoman.com later or on our YouTube channel. Thanks again. <laughs>